So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. This episode features Penny Morden, Trade Minister and the first ever woman to be Secretary of State for Defence. Penny has led an incredible life, full of weird and wonderful jobs. We talk about some of those and some hair-raising experiences she's had. But before that, don't forget you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. With encounters you've had with politicians... They can be exciting or they can be mundane. All of them count. Toby's been in touch. He said, it must have been 1987 or 88. I love a historical one. I mean, some of you must have even older ones than this. So please, please get in touch. He says, we're living in Hounslow and used to go to the Brentford Waterman's Art Centre for a bit of culture now and then. (laughs) Good for you, Toby. Don't forget, you can get live culture every other Monday at the Duchess Theatre. Tickets at mattford.com slash live. He said, one evening, we'd parked and we're heading for the entrance behind a middle-aged couple. I love the detail. It's 1987 years ago. I turned back to say something to my wife and didn't notice the man ahead of me was holding the door open for us. As a result, I trod on his foot, turned to apologise and realised it was Neil Kinnock. He was very gracious, and a few minutes later, when I raised a pint to him across the curve bar, he winked at me. Lovely man, very warm. Well, as listeners of this show will know, Neil Kinnock has cropped up a few times in these stories. He's probably the most spotted in these emails. But it's always a very, very pleasant story, um, which is no surprise at all, of course. Um, so, if you've had a strange, a surreal, or even a mundane encounter with a politician, email the show, Political Party Podcast at gmail.com. This, of course, is one of the new live shows every fortnight now at the wonderful Duchess Theatre in London's glittering West End, uh, which is such a treat. The next one is on Monday, the 25th of October with Caroline Flynn. What's great about this new run is there's so many people, obviously I've had some people on before, I've had people on the live shows, I've interviewed people over Zoom, then had them on live. So many people I've never had the chance to interview before. And Caroline Flint has always been on that top list. And I'm delighted she's finally been able to do it. So the Monday, the 25th of October at the Duchess Theatre in London, my guest will be the brilliant Caroline Flint. That is not a night to be missed. As you know, I'm sure, um, from Caroline when she was in politics and now that she's in broadcasting and, and many other areas, she does not mince her words. She's very passionate, very articulate, very thoughtful and uh, and outspoken. So that promises to be a, a, a brilliant night, particularly when that new Labour documentary is fantastic. And so many of you got in touch to say you enjoyed the John Rental episode. And he's such a great talker, John. I wish I could do his course. Um, but on the back of that, so great to talk to someone who served in that time and observed the Blair and Brown government from within. So that will be a real treat. Caroline Flint, Monday the 25th of October 
uh, at the Duchess Theatre. Two weeks after that, Anna Sawa, the new leader of Scottish Labour, one of the biggest stars, uh, of, of the, one of the biggest rising stars uh, in the in the Labour universe, um, and that is on Monday, the eighth of October, eighth uh, of November. Sorry, uh, the standing ovation he got at the Labour Party conference when Keir Starmer name checked him was was significant so it's obvious he's not just popular in scotland he's popular across britain so two fantastic labor guests coming up tickets for those shows and for all future shows including anthony scaramucci jeremy hunt the christmas special and all the dates next year of which guests are soon to be announced are available at mapford.com live and there's a link in the blurb where you can just click and buy the tickets there's also a link to penny morden's brilliant book greater which we talk about but it's a really interesting concept of a book. Um, she co-authored it with uh, with someone that she doesn't necessarily share the politics of. We talk about the reasons for that. But also, it looks back, and it well, it doesn't necessarily look back. It's, it's an assessment of the British character, but it also looks forward with some of the answers about how we can solve our society. So, as well as that, and some amazing stories from her incredible life. Of course, in, this, uh, in these live shows, there's a bit of stand-up. I began... Uh, by talking about the Prime Minister's party conference speech. Some of the things that he does, you think he sort of traps you, really good at trapping you in logic, where you go, we have, uh, in the UK, uh, yes, uh, we, we, uh, we, 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 we do, we do, uh, we, we, uh, we do, I can see, yes, we, we have one of the most lopsided uh, economies uh, in, in, in Europe, uh, one of the most imbalanced uh, societies, you know? yeah, I, I agree, but you have been in charge for 11 years, yes, uh, uh, it's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. So you agree with me? Oh, fuck. Yeah, I think I do, yeah. Well, hang well, on a minute. What do you do about it? Well, well, what would Libby do about it? Oh, fuck, man. You got me again. What? How do you do this? Oh, well, 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 well. well, where do we go now? When you want to go. No, stop. Right, that's uh, it's gone far enough. Apparently, before his speech, I think he delivered it really well, but apparently before his speech, his pre-speech drink was a flat white coffee with extra caramel syrup and three sugars. No wonder he always looks like that. He can't fucking stand still. Fucking hell, even if he tried to comb his hair, it wouldn't work. I mean, that is the least prime ministerial drink. A flat white with extra caramel and three... That is not the drink of a leader. But like on that new Labour documentary, Tony Blair saying, well, look, before the night of the Iraq speech, I had a couple of umbongos. I think it was really important. I don't know if you remember Ambongos around uh, sort of a, a hippo tuck of guava and an apricot and mango. And I just felt it was the right sort of thing. You know, I needed to be clear. I needed something that was vaguely fruit-based, but that also had sugar. And you know, Mandelson there going, of course, no, Tony was very clever with his... With his having Ambongo, I thought it was... Well, I thought it was masterful. No, I always felt that they that was new labour. I thought Tony was very um, and I thought Gordon was more bongo. <laughs> Uh, no, 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 that's not my recollection at all. No, no, no. No, my recollection is that Tony would have on bongos and then give the rest to me. That's not my, not my recollection at all. Uh, Rishi Sunak. Do people like Rishi Sunak's speech? <laughs> Even the people who went to Tory conferences. I thought was interesting about his speech. The first one I've ever seen, we had a sort of like pre-gig video that brought him on. And it said sort of like more jobs, the fastest growing economy in the G7, and then Rishi Sunak, the kind of um, signature, you think? There aren't many Tory chancellors in history that could have done that. 
Norman Lamont, 15% interest rates, 12% inflation, Black Wednesday by Norman. <laughs> Austerity by George Osborne. Welcome into the stage. He does a weird thing, Rishi Sunak. The sort of kissy lips. I've never noticed it. Whatever it takes. <laughs> sort of fishy, Sunak. He's sort of... I don't know, is he blowing kiss? But it kind of works. It's so interesting when you see politicians be nakedly uh, ambitious. Because when you watch that new Labour documentary, Gordon Brown would always couch it in sort of political language. But Rishi Sunak's speech, basically 20 minutes CV. At one point he went, my years in California <laughs> left a real mark on me. You're like, mate, you're the chancellor. You're not at a job interview. I work very well in a team. And if I have a weakness, it's probably that I'm a workaholic and a bit of a perfectionist. Uh, Dominic Raab! Oh, man! The gift that keeps on giving with a very quiet voice, Dominic Raab. Misogyny, I disagree with misogyny, whether it's a woman being misogynistic to a man or a man being misogynistic to a woman. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, I disagree with misogyny if it's a woman doing it to a man, because that's impossible, you fucking idiot. We're all against it. Islamophobia is wrong, whether it's an atheist against a Muslim or a Muslim against a fox. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense, mate. His, uh, his big idea, by the way, this hasn't had nearly enough coverage to solve our lorry driver shortage. Dominic Raab, Mr. Sort of Tough Guy, wants to let criminals fill the labour gap and drive lorries. Drive lorries full of things like petrol. <laughs> Dominic Ra of all the people in the government, Dominic Raab has said, I think we should let criminals do it. You're like, what could possibly go right? What do you mean, what do you mean that oil tank hasn't turned up? No, 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 it was meant to arrive five hours ago. Well, I don't see what could possibly have gone wrong unless you don't think the driver, Alan the arsonist, has something to do with this. <laughs> Fucking hell. And the whole, the whole lorry thing is just so sad because we're gonna get a load of people back that we basically told to piss off to drive our lorries. Do you know where we're gonna send them back? Christmas Eve. <laughs> the cruelest date of the year. Those temporary visas are going to expire. A load of lorry drivers going home on Christmas Eve. It's going to be like that Coca-Cola advert in reverse. <laughs> so sad. Gary Neville got involved in politics this week. Very left-wing Gary Neville. He said, all I know about the Tory party is they look after themselves. This cancellation of £20 universal credit uplift is a disgrace. And you think, I don't mind people talking about politics. It's weird when it's someone I watch talk like that about football all the time. And they're not talking. I don't know if anyone else had that. I can't get my. I always expected Jamie Carragher. No, no, no. I'm not saying, Gary, that I. I'm not saying I agree with the Tories. All I'm saying is, you hand out 20 quid to everyone. That's going to be inflationary because, yes, they are, Gary. No, you're not listening. No, because someone else says, we're giving him 20 quid. Well, I want 20 quid. And that's what happens, right? 20, how many people are there in the UK? Well, 55 million. That's, that's 20 quid a week to everybody. That's, that's a billion quid a week, Gary. That, you can't say that's not inflationary. What are the Perry on about? Don't, 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 you got it the wrong way round. No, no, no. Jamie, it's the wrong way round it. No, no, you need wages to keep, keep, keep up with prices. No, 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 it's prices are going too fast. The wages are going too slow. You don't even understand Keynesianism. I don't know why you're on this programme. Well, coming up after the break, Manchester United against Manchester City and a detailed discussion about the effects of the exchange rate on interest rates and inflation. That's all coming up live on Sky. I'd watch that. The phrase they use now that they're trying to get Starmer to buy into is uh, Southgate patriotism, which as far as I can aware, <laughs> what most people believe it is, proud to be English, not proud of the racist people that are still knocking about. I mean, it's really not that hard to go, yeah, I like them actually, I, I want people where I'm from to win. Oh yeah, 
Isn't that what we've always believed? Like, people in the Labour Party are like, God, how do we solve this problem? Southgate, yeah, let's give it a thing. Southgate was really good at just trying to bring people along, and I think that's probably what they respected. You know, very much, I think, you know, if you look towards the end of the tournament, I think, you know, perhaps some of our supporters weren't quite getting the, uh, the message about why we were... Like, just have an antihistamine. What the fuck is going on with that? <laughs> It looks like he's got hay for He's got the worst job in the world. Always stood on the edge of a massive park. Oh. <laughs> I think some of our players perhaps did react to that, but towards the, you know, look at the performance levels towards the end of the tournament. <laughs> you just think, actually, I'd like them to go one step further now, because just saying, oh, well, people don't get it, was fine for them, but actually it ruins it for everyone else, let alone the players. And I would, for Qatar, if we're talking about morality in football, for the... <laughs> Qatar World Cup, that hopefully all the home nations will be at. <laughs> I would like to see him go one further. But the, the beauty of Southgate, and this is the lesson for politics, is to be able to articulate quite a crunchy message, probably in quite a tactful way still. Well, I think as we do look towards the World Cup, I, I think perhaps we do have to confront the fact that we wouldn't like a lot of our own supporters there. We'd rather perhaps a, a, attract a different demographic because some of those people at Wembley were cunts. <laughs> <laughs> You put it like that, Gareth, I think you bring all of us on board with you. Obviously, Starmer hasn't managed that yet. I mean, his speech when he got heckled by... The whole thing, what I found hilarious about Starmer's speech was, the whole goal of it was to say, we've moved on. And all the people heckling him just proved that the Labour Party isn't what it was even two years ago. But they heckled him while he was talking about his mum dying. It was just like the worst... I mean, who knew anti-Semitic communists were unreasonable people? <laughs> Oh, now I understand what's terrible about these people. I, was, I, I wish, actually, because some of his, he, he dealt with it quite well. I said, usually at this time on a Wednesday, it, it's the Tories heckling me. Doesn't bother me there, doesn't bother me now. I thought, oh, that's quite sweet. I would have liked him to see him use some standard comedy club heckle put-downs. Yeah, save your breath, mate. You'll need to inflate your girlfriend later. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been nice, wouldn't it? But he, uh, he, he had... <laughs> he had... A breakfast that caused a lot of fuss. I don't know if you saw this. He had uh, fish and cheese. That old classic. I mean, obviously what's happened is he's got late, gone to the breakfast buffet, and that's all that's been left. But everyone's sort of been going, why is he having fish and cheese for breakfast? What a strange guy. Like, if you're at a premiere and you get up early, otherwise you miss out on the bubble and squeak sausage and beans. Everyone knows this, right? Apparently I'm the only one in this room that knows it. You get your breakfast, your good night guarantee from £29. We all know. It turns out, me and Lenny Henry are the only two people that know this. <laughs> but everyone was sort of overanalyzing, going, oh, fish and cheese, he's got fish and... Like, I mean, who cares if that's what he wants for breakfast anyway? Like, this is the problem, that in politics now, and I'm in danger of this sometimes, you kind of overanalyze every little detail. You're like, if you'd ever had a croissant, who would have said, ah, oh, they're going to they're gonna lobby to rejoin the EU, that's what that is. <laughs> Sending a signal to the Blairites, this prick. And if you had a full English to go, oh, here we go, signaling to the far right, the guy's basically a racist. <laughs> Sausage and ash browns, we hear you loud and clearly. That's a bowl of Cocoa Pops, he's a paedophile. <laughs> you can't win. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm absolutely delighted that we have tonight's guest here. Um, makes it sound like she wasn't going to turn up. <laughs> she threatened to pull out. Um, because she is one of the biggest stars in modern British politics, someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time. That's a catchphrase for newcomers, by the way. It's the closest thing this show gets to any sort of meaningful structure, so enjoy it. And um, was the first ever female Secretary of State for Defence. <laughs> is now a trade minister and has come to talk to us about all the wonderful deals we're going to do now that we've left the European Union. 
please give a wonderful, rousing political party welcome to Penny Mordaunt. Hello. Penny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Got a beer on the go there? I have. Thank you very much. That's all right. Um, I've provided you with a glass because I forgot to give Andy Burnham a glass the other week. Did he complain? He kicked up a bit of a fuss, yeah. Oh, well, I'm from Portsmouth. Does that mean you'll kick up more of a fuss? No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, I'm fine with a tinny. That's fine. But seaside towns, that's the thing. You know, they can get a bit uh, frisky. But frisky's not right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, fights break out. I don't know if that's something you've ever experienced. Um, I've, I've not been involved in one, but I've seen a few, yes. I, I, once did a I wasn't going to talk to you about this, but I once did a Christmas gig in Portsmouth, and they said, oh, it's fine. You know, they, it was down at the Spinnaker Tower. And it's this place down in Portsmouth that has like a glass back. So it looks out onto the sea, but the stage was facing the audience, so behind me was the sea. And basically a fight broke out during the gig. This was like the 23rd of December, because someone said the air conditioning was on too high, and someone said, no, I think it's too cold. <laughs> so the guy who said it was too cold got knocked out by the guy who said it was too high. He got thrown out, but then he realised he could get back in that door, so he ran round the back. <laughs> so everyone sort of saw him run along the seafront, and then he came in that door and knocked two guys out. So... Um, Portsmouth, eh? <laughs> well, Spinnaker Tower is a bit... That's, that's kind of uh, uptown. Um, the notorious place in Portsmouth was Joanna's nightclub, mm. which was legendary. Um, and uh, I, I had a, a carpet-cleaning job um, when I was going through uh, college. And uh, I remember going into Joanna's nightclub and losing the sole of my shoe on the floor. It was that kind of place. <laughs> but, yeah, Joanna's was where... If you wanted a proper fight, well, that's, <laughs> that's where you'd go. Um, I, I, again, I wasn't going over this. In terms of carpet cleaning, I spilt some, genuinely this Saturday, I've got a cream carpet, spilt some sweet chilli sauce on it, and I've put everything on there I can find on the internet. I've got no idea how to get it out. Do you know, of all the questions I prepared for tonight, <laughs> that, was, that was not one of them. But I can sort you out. I can sort you out with people that know about that stuff. Yeah, Dr. Don't Kaufman is really good. What is? <laughs> Dr. Kaufman. Dr. Oh, Kaufman. Oh, there we go, yeah. Okay, and yeah. does he do appointments? <laughs> I think it was Dr. Ottica that I spilled on the carpet, actually. So that's, what's the medical world doing in the world of carpet? Um, do, you, so do you work for them? Uh, no, but I also have clean carpet and a very messy oh. Oh, there we go. <laughs> a cream carpet and a messy house. <laughs> oh, what a life. Um, so, Penny, good of you to be here. So you, you're not on holiday. You're, you're, you're staying to work. Not in mobs, no. I'm here. No. Uh, do you think it's okay? For, I mean, it's all right for politicians to take holidays, isn't it? I think it is all right for politicians to take holidays. Um, uh, I think our Prime Minister has demonstrated a Nelsonian style of leadership. And... Uh, He's in charge still, so that's fine by me. When you say Nelsonian, do you mean like as in successful or kind of like at sea? <laughs> <laughs> no, he picks his team, he's got his Collingwoods, he delegates. Loves being on a boat. <laughs> and loves being on a boat. Because you're like an honorary admiral or something in the, in the world. Captain. I'm Sorry. A, I'm a captain. Yeah. So I'm not great on military rank, so captain is lower down than an admiral. Correct. Or, or higher. So, and what does your honorary captaincy mean you can do? So honorees do a whole raft of things for the Navy um, and it depends on your skills what you what you do so there are there are some people that do really technical stuff um, and I basically 
give some advice to the First Sea Lord and his management team. And then when I go to sea, I talk to all of the messes on all of the ships. So I talk to the senior rates mess and the junior ranks and the officers mess and just try and find out how I can make their lives better, basically. So it actually involves doing stuff? Yeah. I thought it was like an honorary doctorate where you're like, I don't want Marcus <laughs> Rashford operating on me. Like, No, so the, um, the last time I was at sea was right before the pandemic because obviously we've been restricted on what we can do and I was on HMS Albion uh, getting her ready for her deployment. So we were doing sea boat drills, gunnery, all sorts of stuff. I was there helping find, you know, snagging, that sort of stuff. So what's, sna what's snagging? I, I don't understand anything about the Navy. Uh, although I've seen Vigil with Martin Compton, is it basically... Sort of <laughs> no, it's not. Um, no, we just, uh, we just try and get things to run better. Um, continuous improvement, all that, all that sort of stuff that we do in government really well. <laughs> uh, that's what the Navy does. So, uh, the armed forces are in your blood, your dad was a paratrooper. I, I mean, I remember being told at school, they're basically like the hardest people in the military. Yeah. Was he like a tough guy? Yeah, he was. Uh, he, he was. I mean, I didn't. I didn't know him when he was serving. Um, but uh, he uh, he then went on to be a PE teacher, uh, and Makes uh, sense. and then he became a youth worker. And he did some amazing work actually with um, lots of kids that needed some help. Um, so he's uh, he's still going strong. He's eighty, and he uh, he lives near me, and which is good because he needs uh, he needs someone to keep an eye on him because I think once a para, always a para. Goes into Portsmouth on a Friday night. He's not a Joanna's, no, he's not a Joanna's, but, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, he's great. You obviously, I mean, it's so cool when you get someone who ends up holding a brief that actually means something to them or that they have experience. So often in government, it's not the case. So coming from that military background, then ending up as Secretary of State for Defence, I mean, it must have been a proud moment for you, but he must have been very proud at that moment. Yeah, he was. I mean, I have, I don't think he quite knows what I do <laughs> for a living, but... Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a proud moment. I think um, also being the first woman was pretty special as well. And normally when, you, uh, when there's a reshuffle, you, you go into number 10, you're, you're given your new brief, and then you go straight into the department. And when I went in, um, my office was full of flowers from all the serving women there, which was quite a lovely moment. That's really... I mean, I, I imagine that obviously as the first woman, it must have meant so much to a lot of people. I think so, because... We, we, the armed forces, why, why they're so good at all the diversity stuff is because they know that it makes you more operationally effective. So knowing they've got a, a woman around the board table in defence, I think meant a lot to them. And what's it like being a woman in the defence world? It's, well, it's a privilege, uh, whether you're a man or a woman, to work alongside these amazing people. I mean, it, every day is, was, is, was just so special. I worked, obviously I was Secretary of State, but... Prior to that, for about 18 months, I was Minister of State for the Armed Forces, again, the first woman to do that. And at a really kinetic time for this country, lots of, lots of operations, and uh, it, was, uh, it was amazing. These, these individuals are incredible. I think we know that they're very brave and they make lots of sacrifices, but I think most people have no idea what they, what they do, really, and, and the hardships that they endure. Um, so there were really quite profound moments, and then... Hilarious ones as well. <laughs> a few life and death <laughs> experiences occasionally, and um, uh, but just uh, they're just a great bunch of people. 
I'm very privileged. He sort of breezed over a few life and death experiences, but great people. So, what <laughs> what were the life and death experiences? Well, I I began to think it, there was a bit of a conspiracy um, to get me to up their maintenance budgets, particularly on helicopters, because I was I was jinxed and uh, I, I had a few quite hairy moments in a in several helicopters, um, including one where. We were we were over the Aegean Sea and we we lost power and uh, we it was quite it was a difficult situation because we had the pilot and the observer were on comms and I was on comms but we had three other people um, and it was a wildcat helicopter and we they they couldn't hear what was going on so this whole episode is immortalised because the only way I could tell my military assistant, that we were about to crash into the sea, which we didn't in the event, we, we managed to get to land. Spoiler but, alert. I know, I know, I, I, I lived, I lived. Um, uh, was to type on my phone and hand the phone to him. So th this is a, the, the conversation we had is, is on my wall in my office. It is hilarious. Um, we were very calm and, uh, and uh, at, at one point, we're, as we're discussing, you know, how to get the door open, what do we get out? before we've gone under the water and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Um, we pause and, and just admire the calmness of the observer and the pilot, who were, who were literally there, happy as Larry, photographing the instruments in case none of us survived. Um, yeah, so um, this, this happened frequently to me, which oh is why I thought God. it was a, a, a bit of a conspiracy theory to... Uh, to, uh, so once over the Aegean Sea, I mean, how c you know when you lose power, are you just dropping like a stone? No, we, we, we were fairly steady, but we had to, the, we made it uh, by turning off basically everything we didn't need to keep us in the air. So we were, we were all right, but it was, it was quite touch and go for a while. So that, I mean, obviously I don't know how helicopters work, but like, is it like someone like, we're losing power, you go, oh, sorry, I was charging my iPad. It's like, <laughs> it was what? that kind of thing. Yeah, what that, else are you turning on? I'm surely everything there helps. We had uh, one of the, one of the passengers was um, a guy from the, the embassy, uh, who had, he was a nervous flyer, so we decided not to tell him anything until the last moment, but he did, he did emerge, uh, you know, not knowing anything had happened, um, so we were all very calm. And the other times, was it like that, or was it more... Well, you just, you, I mean, you just get to do really amazing things, yeah. and, and go to parts of the world you wouldn't normally see. Um, and and see incredible heroic acts and service. It's a privilege. And also, guns, <laughs> planes, nukes, you know, all the kind of... Obviously, it's very important that we live up to our international responsibilities, but also, like, cool stuff. Yeah, there's quite a lot of that. So, like, what's, yeah. the, what's like, the coolest thing that you've, like, played with? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the really cool stuff I can't tell you about. I'm sorry. Okay. Like, um, what's the but you know, well, uh, getting onto a submarine at sea—it's pretty oh cool. Oh my god! What? Uh, Joining it at sea? Yeah, yeah. I've done done that. Um, I presented um, the first women submariners with their dolphins. So when you when you have done your first tour um, as a submariner, you are presented with your dolphins, which is the the badge you wear as a submariner, and um, you're presented to they're presented to you not by pinning them on you, but they put them in a, a large tot of rum and you have to down it in one and catch the dolphins in your teeth. So um, <laughs> I, w I, I joined uh, one of our bomber subs on her route back in um, and presented the first women to have done a tour 
with their dolphins, which was quite cool. And do you have to do every shot with them? Yeah. You don't have to, but I did. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's one thing people say about like the armed forces, like the sort of hard drinking culture. Like, were you comfortable? I think no. I think that has I think that has changed. Um, uh, you know that they they do know how to have a good time, but I think it's different to to what it was like um, when when my father was serving, for example. And it must. I mean, this sounds like such a sort of novice thing to ask, but a submarine feels like a very claustrophobic, scary place. I mean, I'm basing that obviously on The Hunt for Red October, <laughs> Vigil with Martin Compton, The Widowmaker. Um, is it as kind of like hot and low ceiling as it looks? So I think our modern submarines are very, very big. Um, yeah. And you, you don't appreciate how big they are because you never you only see a tiny portion of them. Normally, it's when you see them in dry dock you really uh, it's jaw dropping when you do see the whole the whole thing. But um, it's it's not so much the 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 sort of crampness and and all of that. It's the fact that I mean if you have been uh, if you're a senior rate on a on a submarine you will have spent at least ten years of your life underwater. That, and that's just, and to me, that's mind-blowing, that, that people are prepared to do that, to keep this country safe. It's, it's those sorts of things. And, you know, the, the fact that you can't communicate with your family. Um, it's, it's really incredible what these people do. And I, I think it's one of the... I've been doing quite a bit of work, actually, with the submarine service, because... And I think they're going to start to tell a bit more of a story about, about the service because they have to recruit to it. And, and it's a service that you get to do some very, very cool stuff in. Yeah. But no one ever gets to hear about it. So I'm hoping they're going to be able to tell the story a bit more. But um, I've been involved with uh, some fundraising recently to get uh, the, a proper submariner's memorial at the Royal Arboretum because the, there, are, there isn't one, really. Um, so And they, they, uh, every service... They, they deserve one. Uh, obviously, different memorials have different things. I mean, what would that be? Just a sort of big bottle of rum with a plastic dolphin in it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, I, I can't tell you what it's going to be like, but it is, it is a stunning memorial. So. I can't get over something underwater for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. And like, how often would they sort of pop off? <laughs> so if you, I mean, in a modern submarine, you, the only reason why you need to surface is to take on food. So um, they will stay submerged for three months. Oh my God! Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, uh, and what's the food like? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, it's it's pretty good actually. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, yeah. Oh my! I just you know what? It's one of those things where you, I sort of presume it's hard, but it's only when you hear that you realise sort of how severe the experience is. So, being in a kind of claustrophobic stressful environment with people who are drinking rum. How did that <laughs> prepare you they for They don't cabinet? do that every day. It's not like, you know, brush your teeth, take your, take your tot of rum. That's the, those days have gone. But, uh, no, they, I mean, serving in the armed forces is... Uh, it's, it's all of those things that you don't see. It's the... I, I remember during uh, 2015 when we had all the terrible floods, I went up to thank the, the UK standby battalion for... They say we're doing a lot of the work rescuing people and sandbags and all that sort of stuff. And uh, there was a chap there who, his brother was getting married. And they were, they were working so hard and they had so little flex that he couldn't go to his brother's wedding. It's, it's all of those sorts of things. And it's one of the, it's one of the only ser services where you, 
where you have that level of commitment and you sign up and you, you do it, uh, which is why I think we always need a, you know, to make sure that the military are of a particular size. It's not just about expeditionary warfare, it's that all the other stuff we ask them to do and, and we should pay them well. And how do you feel about Afghanistan then and, and our withdrawal from there? Because coming from a military background, understanding Britain's role in the world and, and, and understanding the role that our armed forces play in that, most people seem to think it's, it's the wrong decision. So I was, I've been reflecting on this because I'm, I'm always interested in why, th why things happen. Why do people choose to do particular things, even if people think that they're not the most the easiest route or the smartest thing to, to do. Um, I was reflecting on you know, the decision that, that Margaret Thatcher took um, to retake the Falkland Islands, for example, which people were saying at the time was not, was not the, the, the strategically right thing to do. And it comes down to political will. And I think that, I mean, I have to say, I think Ben Wallace did an amazing job as Defence Secretary, and he, I think, did everything he could uh, to try and get a, a coalition and uh, a different exit, uh, but uh, was not able to do that. But ultimately, this is why political thinking really matters, because it determines things like that. And we, you know, people have not, they've been very critical about uh, how, we, how we've done in Afghanistan and the things that we've enabled. And I think over that terrible period, you saw exactly the things that had been achieved and how much it meant to people there. I, I've been to Afghanistan many times over many years and uh, I'd say to anyone who served in any of those campaigns that this, this won't undo what, what you achieved for people. Um, half of that population has only ever known uh, the freedom that, and the security space that, that those people provided. It does feel like it was such a success. Why, why are we ending it? Well, ultimately, um, people have decided that it is not, it's not something that they want to be involved in. Um, and it does, I know you did a podcast with, with Tom Tugendhat and, and he said, you know, it does feel like a defeat, but it's not a victory for the Taliban. Uh, the Taliban have won uh, a lifetime of servitude for their mothers, girlfriends, <laughs> uh, sisters. Uh, they've won terrorism, which we're now seeing unfold. It's, uh, they're, they're not victors in this. It's, a, it's an extremely sad situation. And I'm still involved with trying to obviously get people out, but also protect people there, particularly women, and also enable girls to continue to have an education. So we're looking to try and accredit a course uh, that they can, they can do online, but it also will mean something uh, if they want to and have the opportunity to go and, and study somewhere else. Because everyone, I mean, Ben Wallace, you mentioned that, that, that clip of him on LBC, he, he just looked absolutely stricken. Uh, when I spoke to Tom Tugendhat, these people are really upset by the decision. I mean, you look moved when you talk about it. So, of course, we know a lot of people who are involved, but I don't think we need to be upset. I think we need to show some defiance. That's what I think. But the best acts of defiance would be to stay there and fight the Taliban? Well, I, as I say, it's about political will. Um, so... <laughs> Because it's such, I mean, the problem is with Afghanistan, it just feels like, 
I don't understand the logic of it because people say, well, we went there because you know, the Taliban harbored al-Qaeda became this hotbed for terrorism and you know, the way the Taliban treated its own people. And then us being there stopped all that. And then you can only really conclude that us leaving is then going to lead to that happening again. Or am I wrong? So, no, you will, you will see that. Um, and I think that the, the thinking uh, from America is that it also becomes China's problem. Um, but I think, I think it, will, it will be our problem as well. One thing that British servicemen and women and uh, our allies did was keep our streets safe. And uh, there is a direct link between the security space that they provided in Afghanistan and, uh, uh, and uh, what was happening back here. So, yeah, it's, that's, that's not a good thing. It just feels like a sort of very grim situation. Um, so, let's move on to sort of happier, happier times, happier places. The Conservative Party has been in Manchester um, for its conference. Love your link between <laughs> Afghanistan and uh, Conservative Party conference. Um, so, I mean, are you a fan of Conservative Party conference? And did, did, to you, did it feel like a successful week? So, I was only there for 24 hours um, because I was... Uh, on a helicopter, it was losing was altitude. <laughs> absolutely. No, I was trying to get some petrol for my constituents, so <laughs> I decided that was um, my priority. But I did. I went for um, I went for the Tuesday, and uh, yeah, it was all right. It was good. And did you enjoy Boris's big speech? I I wasn't in the hall, but I listened to it, and yeah, I think you know, I think a lot of t the time people say you need to announce a lot of policy. You don't need to announce a lot of policy. You need to sell out a vision, you need to boost morale and tell people that, you know, what we're, what we're up to. And what's he like as a Prime Minister to, to deal with? I've always got on with him. Um, I, I've, you know, I have, I've worked with him, I worked with him quite closely when I was Secretary of State for International Development and he was over at the Foreign Office and uh, rather than have separate meetings I decided it was a good idea for us, all of our Ministers to be around the table uh, so that we uh, we were working together, and uh, yeah, got on with him fine. And is he uh, is he sort of more impressive behind the scenes, or is he kind of as he appears? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, but I think that I think that's what people like about him because that that is who he is. Um, yeah. But it, I mean, is, is he on top of the detail? As a prime minister, you think, oh, actually, he's, he's adding value here. He's certainly going, penny, come on. You, 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 we're doing all this international. Oh, you can't we cut some of this godforsaken? Well, he knows, he knows what he, he wants to achieve, and he finds the people that he thinks can do it, and he gives them very clear instructions, and he expects them to crack on. Because obviously, it's, uh, uh, it's the, at the moment, is the government broadly on side of them? Is, is uh, our, our minister's kind of. Uh, <laughs> Deeply loyal to him? Does it feel like a prime minister is in control of his own government? The government does not resemble Joanna's nightclub, if that's what you're, <laughs> if that's what you're getting at. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. What were the Theresa May years like? Because one of the things that I found fascinating about that was a, a Remainer trying to deliver a soft Brexit, and it kind of scattered people all over the place. There's an amazing account of that cabinet meeting where... Theresa May's putting her deal and then people who she might have thought were going to be against it sound like they're against it, but then they come out in favour. But apparently you were very firm in rejecting the deal and that was a sort of big moment around the cabinet table. Is that how you remember it? So, yes. I mean, it didn't make any difference at all, <laughs> I'm afraid. 
I think it, I mean, it was an incredibly difficult time and uh, for, for all kinds of reasons. And uh, I mean, I, I felt it was always very difficult for a Remainer to try and deliver Brexit because they had to, in a way, demonstrate their Brexity credentials. And, yes. and what you actually wanted at that time was the opposite. You wanted someone that people would trust because they thought it was the right thing to do, but didn't have to do all of the kind of flag-waving stuff and could really reach out to um, the other side of the argument and bring people together. And I, I still think, although you know, it is, uh, it's been a turbulent few years, it actually demonstrated the, the strengths of our country and, uh, and our system of government and parliament and the courts and our unwritten constitution because ultimately, although there were huge differences with how people saw you know, what, what our relationship should have been like with the EU, people largely agreed on the process. And I've always said the heroes of that whole episode were not people like me that voted to leave. They were people that voted to remain and accepted the democratic result. And that, to me, is the sign not of a divided country, but a, but a strong country. Well, on behalf of those of us who voted to remain, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> I didn't realise I was a hero of Brexit. I'm not sure how I feel about it. That's how uh, I feel about it. <laughs> but how, maybe I'm just seeing this through the Blair Brown lens, but the thought, I mean, what's odd is, I was... And I think the public often imagine that all MPs are very powerful, that ministers and cabinet ministers are powerful, and they're comfortable speaking around a cabinet table. But actually, then you see these documentaries, you go, oh, God, it feels kind of awful, and, and it can be awkward to sometimes say what you think around the cabinet table at an awkward moment. I mean, did it feel awkward, or did it feel completely comfortable? No, I think if you're there, there's no, if you're not going to say what you think and you're not going to give your best advice, you know, do something else. Um, the only time I did get a bit cross at one point where, because um, what, what uh, I think was frustrating was that you'd have very, very long cabinet meetings and then you'd realise the decision had already been taken uh, and, and uh, on a couple of occasions so that uh, no one went off uh, and said something they um, shouldn't, we were held in a sort of pen the cabinet um, <laughs> given some wine whilst a statement was made outside and I this meeting had overrun and I had a bunch of school kids waiting for me in Parliament I was supposed to be telling them about democracy and um, I thought you know sod this I'm not I'm not hanging back for this so I attempted to escape um, and you couldn't get out the front because that's where the sort of piece to camera was going on but out the back of number 10 there's this joining bit to the cabinet office and it's sort of this little tube that you go into and a security guard makes sure you're allowed through and then you, you go through. Anyway, I, I made it to the tube and I persuaded someone that I was legitimately allowed to go through and use their pass to get through. Um, and I'd made it halfway down the cabinet corridor to get out of the front of the cabinet office. Anyway, the security team were alerted and they s told this poor security guard who was just sort of manning the door, that I had to be stopped, I wasn't allowed out. Um, and he, he informed me of this, and I gave him some options, and um, he let me go. <laughs> so, but that was the only time I behaved badly and unprofessionally in, uh, in, uh, uh, throughout that whole period. So I did lose it, I just thought I'm going to go and talk to my school children. What were the options? 
<laughs> well, I, I gently inquired how he was going to do that. <laughs> it was going And uh, we both agreed he'd done his job. <laughs> so, uh, so he let me go. Ex-military, because you've got like military, you know, connections. I bet you're quite good in a situation like that. Tunneling out of the cabinet. Yeah, camouflage. It's, it wasn't very hard. It wasn't very difficult. It wasn't very difficult. So people, presumably the other state, just drinking wine. Yeah. How long were they there for? I don't, I know, they, I don't know. I don't know. David Davis is probably still there. So <laughs> get another bottle of red. I think he'd there. resigned by that point. So uh, no. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs and medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. But obviously, sort of, it's not the right phrase to use, sort of confidence tricks, but misdirection is, is part of your history because you worked in magic for many years. I did, yes. I, to put myself through my A-levels, I worked Friday and Saturday nights for a fantastic chap called Will Ayling, who was president of the Magic Circle, and I was his assistant. So, I mean... You make it, again, he's like, oh, I'll skip myself through here, I was, I was a magician assistant. It's not a sort of standard weekend job, like paperboy working a bar. What, what attracted you to magic? Well, I didn't, I didn't go looking for the job. It sort of came to me, really. That's magic. It's magic, it's magic. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I thought, right, this is interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll do this for a while. But how does it, what, did you know the guy? or do you? So, he, he, I knew his... Previous assistant, because and she was retiring. She'd been sorted. She'd had enough. She'd had enough. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, I. I uh, there meant know. to be blood on this road. <laughs> yeah. But was it scary? I mean, it's a it's a strange old world magic to an outsider. Was what did did you think? Oh God, what if he puts the sword through? So it's it's not really frightening. You're not uh, you're not worried that something's going to go wrong. But some of the some of the illusions were. Uh, I, you know, got cut occasionally. Yeah, you got cut. Yeah, <laughs> if you if you know you hadn't got your limbs in the right place uh, at the right moment, you yeah, you could come a copper. So, so yeah. they're putting swords. So that is so it is genuinely dangerous then. Yeah, if you if you mess up, which obviously I did on frequently, <laughs> frequently. But uh, no, it was it what it was it was a great great time. It was great fun, and it enabled me. I, I was able to, you know. Spend spend only a sh- short time my week doing that, earning some good money, and uh, could get on with all sorts of other things. And what were you best at uh, in magic? What was that? did you have a favourite trick? So, this chap was famous for um, an illusion called zigzag, which is where 
you get into a box and then these very large steel blades are pushed through at all angles. Yeah. And then the middle part of you, which contains your stomach and your hands, are removed and sent somewhere else in the room. That was that was his sort of signature. He he designed that. I mean, it, it sounds not if great for you. If I'd you were interested, Matt, I could have, you know, brought it along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's sort of Copperfield level, Matt. He wasn't doing yeah, David no, no, Blaine no, stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was, and, and actually, he worked with David Copperfield on, on some illusions. So you know all, how all the big magic tricks are done? Yes, I do. And I'm telling you now, if I tell you how they're done, it will ruin magic forever for you. So I'm not going to do that. Do you know how Darren Brown does this stuff? <laughs> I, I, I think what, when you know the basics and you know um, you can spot when people are deliberately distracting people and that sort of thing, uh, you, you, can, you can spot how the principles behind the trick, yeah. And, and how does that inform your relationship with Boris Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. <matter. laughs> but it was, so it was part of, did part of you think, actually, I wouldn't mind a career in showbiz? Did that ever sort of, was that ever in your mind? No, not, not really. I, I knew I wanted a career working in politics, but I didn't think I'd ever be in the front line of it. And I think it was a combination of my, my upbringing. I had a lot of responsibility um, at a young age. And then when I was 18, I went to work in post-revolutionary Romania because I hadn't got anything else to do. Uh, so I went and worked the, for two winters out there in the hospitals and orphanages out there. And that taught me that politics is incredibly important. And so I knew I wanted to work in politics, but I never thought I'd be a politician. See, that would make a much better conference speech than Rishi Sunak's. <laughs> That's better than California <laughs> for a couple of years. It was when I was a magician's assistant in between <laughs> being in post-revolutionary <laughs> Romania, I realised I was a conservative. You know, like, That's a way better origin story. Yeah, or, you know, I, I, what did you say? I think I, I joined the conservative club, I did some leafleting, here I am. So you talked about having a lot of responsibility at a young age. What was that involved? So I, uh, my, I lost my mother um, when I was 15. Um, my dad was ill for a time as well. So I was a, a carer. I had a twin brother. And we basically ran the house. Um, it's, not a, it's not a sob story. It's, uh, I think a lot of my colleagues and partner, actually, it's, it's quite interesting that a lot of people have had lost a parent or have had some kind of traumatic event. And I think it teaches you resilience. It makes you think about what you want to do with your life. Uh, so I think it's, it's just an interesting thing that it's, a, it's something that I have a, uh, in common with a lot of colleagues. Um, so I, I, I think once you have an experience like that, you, you want to sort of take care of people. And your twin brother, did he go into politics? <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't. He is, uh, he is cabin crew for Virgin Atlantic. And uh, a legend. We're both high flyers. <laughs> so <laughs> he has more luck with aircraft than I do. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the thing, you see, that's what's interesting is very easy for you to look at your own story and say, well, of course you went into politics, but your brother went through the same circumstances and didn't. So what attracted No, but you he, he cares about people. I mean I my my both my brothers are fabulous people, but my twin when uh, when he was furloughed from the airline. Um, he could have, you know, 
sat at home, but he didn't. He went and volunteered at the Nightingale in London, and then he retrained as a phlebotomist. So he was doing all the blood plasma work for the NHS. Um, he retrained? Yeah, yeah, he did, he did. Um, that's what? what he did. And he's now back flying with Virgin. So I think, you know, we, we have a lot of... We do very different things, but I think he's, he's someone that cares about people a lot. And he takes responsibility for things. He tr if, he, if he thinks he can help, he'll do it. It seems to be a family trait. You just have this amazing approach to the labour market, which is just <laughs> like, well, I do a bit of magic at weekends, retrain as a phlebotomist. <laughs> you know, just, I've never heard anyone have these jobs. You've, you're you're going to suggest that I'm trained as a lorry driver, aren't you now? No, I can see you're so transparent, I can see where you're going. No, right. not at all, not at all. <laughs> You do seem to, but I think in life, some people just have that kind of, almost, it, it, they're just open to stuff, and they don't see the barriers there, they just sort of get on with it, and everyone else goes, well, I can't be a magician's assistant, or work in revolutionary remake, or, you know, it just, in a way, so many of those things just don't occur to people, but it occurs to you and your brother, I, I don't know whether it's the way that your parents brought you up, or whatever it is, but I think a lot of people envy just that approach to life. I think, as I say, you, you I think... If you lose a parent, you think about what you're doing with your life. You uh, you want to do interesting things. You want to make a difference in the world. I think you can do that in a whole variety of ways, not just in politics, obviously. Um, yeah, I think that's something we've got in common. You've done other sort of showbizy things, like you, you did the TV show Splash. Yes. Which actually would have come in handy when you were losing altitude <laughs> over the would, years. It would. Yeah, I think we did actually we did actually discuss that briefly on the on the as we were plunging towards the sea. Um, yeah, and I have a Lido. I have a Lido to show for it. So my fee went to the Hilsey Lido in Portsmouth, which is still going strong. I think they're at home. We are. No, no. Okay. Well, Portsmouth is quite densely populated, so it's pretty much pretty much home. Um, so yeah, which was a great experience. I got to train with Tom Daly. Yeah. What's not to like? But I mean, the the if you haven't seen it, it's a reality show where celebrities do basically Olympic level dives into the pool. And it's not just like attempt, on holiday. Attempt Olympic level. I, I had the prowess of a paving slab, I think, from my, uh, my diving well, performance. You, you say that, but it looks so high. It is, it is. And obviously there's the clip of <laughs> being sort of jump backwards and then end up kind of belly flopping. I mean, it must have hurt. It did, it did. Yeah, it did, it's 10 meters. Yeah, it's three stories. Yeah. I mean, why'd you do it? For Melido. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's just like, that would have been very triggering. That's the sort no. of last thing you'd want to see after that. We tried, we tried everything else. We tried all kinds of fundraising. It had to be done. But, uh, <laughs> but I managed to get eliminated pretty quickly. So <laughs> there was no, there was a flat fee. So I was fine with that. But did, uh, did any other sort of politicians judge you for it? Because sometimes when politicians do like the jungle and stuff, people are a bit sniffy about it. I think it's a good thing for politicians. No, to I, I, I don't think they were. I mean, the only downside is that um, now, even if it's a completely unrelated topic or article, um, there's pictures of me in a swimsuit <laughs> quite frequently. In fact, when I, I remember, I, I think it was either the first or the second um, reshuffle where I got a, a ministerial post. Uh, there, w there were a lot of women promoted at the same time. Yes. And 
the, the following day we were looking at the papers and there was, I think there was this article called, you know, Downing Street Catwalk. And it was just commentary about what we were all wearing, where our shoes were from, uh, you know, have we got the right fitting bra on, all this sort of stuff. And my female colleagues were absolutely appalled at this appalling sexist stuff. Uh, and I wasn't fussed, and they were like, why are you not bothered by this? I said, well, because it's the first time they've run a, an article and I'm clothed. <laughs> this is progress. Uh, so, yeah. But being a woman in politics, uh, I mean, obviously there was the famous Daily Mail picture of Nicola Sturgeon and Theresa May and, and the comments on the front page of that. Do you feel it's a, a, a big an issue, as, as other people do, or not? Just Well, being judged on your appearance and what you wear and things like that. So I think you you have to. I mean, it's not it's not acceptable. Um, uh, I I think um, you know it's it's one reason why I don't like walking up Downing Street because if you're a fellow, you walk up Downing Street, you'll um, you have a you know headshot taken. If you're a woman, they always do full length. It's 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 just the way life is. But you can uh, if you know how to get through the pod, the interconnecting <laughs> pod. Uh, between uh, uh, Downing Street and the Cabinet Office, it's not a problem. You find, find ways to make it work. But have you faced sexism in, in politics from other MPs? Not really. I think there's, a, there's occasionally things happen where uh, people just assume... I mean, quite often when I used... I mean, it's very flattering, actually. I used to go on uh, field trips or uh, do stuff, and I, if you're a defence minister, you have a military assistant with you, and quite often I'd be mistaken for their wife, uh, which was quite amusing. Um, so I'd have, you know, you'd go to a regimental dinner or something and uh, uh, your military assistant's best friend bounds up to him and slaps him on the back and then gives me a great big kiss. Uh, and then my military assistant has to inform me that he's just, you know, kissed the Secretary of State for Defence <laughs> or <laughs> Minister, Minister for the Armed Forces, uh, which is... Uh, so occasionally things like that happen, but I don't, uh, I, I, I don't really um, encounter... Uh, other people do, but I, I don't. I just think you, um, uh, you, you have to try and help people if they're struggling with the fact you're a woman in politics. And how do you help them? <laughs> well, you just... You can... Uh, you can you can just help uh, guide them. I mean, I, when, I, when we used to go to things, and they perhaps some used to uh, think that the uniform chat with me was the min was the minister yeah. and not me. You can you can quickly explain that situation, and and usually people are mortified, you know, that they've made that assumption. So be be kind to people, give them give them help. If they're still you know being an asshole, then you can do something <laughs> else. But that's uh. I haven't. I have to say, I haven't found any problem. So no one's ever fully been an arsehole. <laughs> no, not really. No. Because it seems like I mean, it's, it's so hard sometimes. You know, you read accounts of what it's like for women working in politics, and it sounds absolutely appalling. It feels like it's sort of not being covered up, but sort of being covered up. It feels like the culture of politics sometimes is is, is very misogynist. So I would, I would say that. Unfortunately, in all walks of life, women encounter th these things. And I think where, if you're in a position of leadership, uh, you can try and resolve that in the organisation that you're working. That's why I think it was important that we had women in certain ministerial offices in defence. Um, 
but you women encounter this all the time and uh, I don't think it's just about politics and uh, yeah the I, I would always say when you know the discussion turns to these things I mean I you know we've had most of my female colleagues myself included we've had lots of threats we've had um, you know security issues and all those sort of things but the downside is far outweighed by the good uh, you know I am I have a fantastic job every single day you get to do things which help people you get to do amazing things some we've touched on you know this evening you get to go to incredible parts of the world meet amazing people it is a really brilliant job and I'd, I spend a lot of time encouraging women to come forward and, and do this job I only got into being in the front line of politics because someone took me aside and said out of everyone I know you should run for office and if that man hadn't done that, uh, I may may not have run. So, so who was that? It was a chap called Rick Nye, who now runs the polling company Populous, but at the time he was research director for the Conservative Party. And I didn't I didn't go to Oxbridge. I, you know, was the last person you'd think working in CCHQ that would ever be an MP. And he just he took me aside and said you should run. So, and what made you a Conservative? Because some people on paper might look at your origin story and say, you know, you lose a parent early, you're a carer, you worked in magic. <laughs> you know, people might say, well, you could have easily been Labour. So why the Conservatives? So I think a combination of those experiences, um, a lot of responsibility at a young age, and seeing what, uh, what happens if you, you don't defend freedom, which I always think is the, the core value of the Conservative Party um, from my, my days in the former Eastern Bloc. But I, but I also, because at the time I was getting interested in politics, Labour were on the, on the up, and I did go to a Labour conference. So what year was that, do you reckon? Oh, I can't remember. It would have been, it would have been pre-97. Okay, but I'm Blair sure. era. Yeah, R oh Blair on the rise. And I went oh. to a Labour education conference and the next day I joined the Conservative Party. <laughs> so oh! That's probably what, that tipped me over the edge. Really? Yeah. Well, yeah. So how bad was it? Extremely. Um, In what way? Was, I, I think it's, I don't get me wrong, there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of good people in Labour, there's a lot, you know, people are do, trying to do good things, but I think, I think what I found in the Conservative Party was uh, a broad church. Generally, people are nice to each other. They're not. They're not into. Um, I think occasionally, Labour politics tips into a bit of a sort of smorgasbord of hate. Yeah. And I don't. I don't find that about. You're not into that. No, I'm not <laughs> into that. Um, so uh, I. That's that's one yeah. of the reasons why I eventually signed up. So. Oh man, so, but at that time then, maybe Tony Blair, you thought, well, possibly, had some appeal? No, I was just, I was just, you know, sh shopping around. I was just, I was just checking out and, you know, I thought... He, he was good, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think he, he had his moments, but he's, um, you know, I think he's probably got better with, as he's gone on. You're right, he needs to come back. <laughs> wouldn't say, I wouldn't go that far. But, uh, no, I'd, I'd, I'd have a lot of time for him. So what's it like that? So you joined the, the Tories, well, for a number of reasons, but the culture of the party was 
more pleasant perhaps than the culture of the Labour Party. It's probably true until Brexit, when that felt like a civil war was tearing the Conservative government apart. That must have been a difficult time to go through, effectively, a kind of opposition within the government. So it was, I think the difficult thing was, you could see how frustrating it was for the public. That's the understatement of the year. <laughs> you know, and we were, we were at deadlock. We, we could not move on. And that was, that was extremely difficult. But as I say, you know, every day I used to go into the House of Commons and opposite us was this row upon row of people from every possible angle on the, on the Brexit situation. And they were all there with their cagoules and their thermos and side by side with their placards. And it was, I think, a demonstration of the fact that we can have debate in this country but we come out of it all right. And I, th I think that's why the public are being quite stoic at the moment, even through really kind of bumpy times, um, because they understand what we, what we chose to do collectively as a country. And some of the things that were, you know, the, the Turkey claim in that referendum is the one that you know, Michael Gove, I think, said he wished he'd spoken about better. I mean, obviously it was one of the big things that Remainers sort of latched onto. And David Cameron wasn't happy about it. I mean. When you went on Andrew Marr and talked about Turkey, did, did David Cameron talk to you directly about that? No, he didn't. Um, but he, the thing is, he, the, the two things that I think wound people up about that campaign was that he, the Remain campaign went and told those people who were economically marginalised that if they didn't vote the right way, they were going to become economically marginalised. And on that particular issue, on the Turkey issue, um, David Cameron had set out and given clear undertakings, not just in private but in public, that he would support uh, Turkey in its ambitions to join the EU. He made several speeches about it. And if you, if you undertake to do that to a NATO ally, you can't then go back on that. And it was one of the sort of tenets of their campaign, and, uh, and, and that's why... It irritated him, but uh, um, yeah, I think it was uh, it needed to be exposed. Because I was wondering those moments. He's the prime minister, <laughs> a conservative MP. I just presume he would ring you up or text you and go, "Penny, I've just seen Sally. What's going on?" But he didn't even get in touch. No, no. I think it's. Um, I mean, it, it was a difficult time because you. Uh, even though you were serving in the same government and government business was still going on, there were there were there were two campaigns going on, and uh, uh, so you talk about things that were related to your brief and, and what you needed to do, but you you didn't discuss, you know. I think you were wrong about that, and yeah. uh, you know, uh, here's where I'm coming from. You know, it, we were in campaign mode on that. But it must have been there must have been times when you're all sat around and someone say, oh. Um, but that, you know, that's the sort of finance briefing, which obviously will change if we fucking move. There must have been times where it sort of crept into other bits and pieces. It didn't really. It didn't really. I think because the campaign, it was like an election campaign. So people were, people were really focused on that. I mean, I, because I was doing at the time a defence brief, I probably spent more time than others in, in Whitehall uh, at, that, at that time. And uh, my Secretary of State was on the, uh, the other side of the, uh, the argument. Um, yeah. So, of the three, you've served with all three Conservative Prime Ministers since since 2010. 
How do they compare to each other? What are the sort of different characteristics? Who do you think? Who do you prefer? <laughs> that's that's a really unfair question. Yeah. Um, which is why you've asked <laughs> it. But they're very very different styles of, of leadership, um, and I think that I think that these days and the the way we're going, and if you look at organisations that that really spend a lot of time thinking about how to run things really well, uh, it is about it's a, it's a cliche, but it is about the team. And I think that we, of, we often look at the, uh, you know, if there's a leadership contest, it's never about the team that you, that you build around you. And I think in the future, that's, that's got to be where, where we head. It's got to be more about the, the ship and, and less about the leader. And what, uh, Theresa May then, because it, I kind of felt for her because... She's such a dedicated public servant, and she voted for May to leave. It's sort of basically chaotic, and then this election business loses the majority, all that sort of stuff. I mean, it, even as someone who's on the other side of the, I kind of felt for her. I mean, I don't know if she was more composed behind the scenes, and it felt less tragic. But from the outside looking in, it, it looked pretty grim. Yeah, I think it. I, I think the public felt for her as well, even though they were very annoyed at what was going on. Uh, because they could see that she was she was doing everything she could, and that her motivations were were right. I mean, I, I didn't agree with her on the way she was going about things, but she is a unionist through and through, and she she really wanted that to be okay, um, which was part of the motivation for some of the things that she did, which I thought actually would have the opposite effect. But uh, I, I think the the British public kept faith with her and they felt very sorry for her because they could see she was she was really trying. You, you talk about moving on from Brexit, you've written a book called Greater with someone who's a Remainer and it's, it's a very funny read and you talk about all the things uh, about our, nat uh, our national characteristics, our different relationships, you know, the relationship we have with the church and how it compares to the pub. I mean, <laughs> what, how would you sort of sum that up in a nutshell? So, so the, the point of the book was... We come through, this is, I originally wrote it before the pandemic, um, but it was updated throughout the pandemic with my, with my co-author. And it was because I felt very strongly that having been through that, we had to find our common ground again. We had to, as a, as a country, come together, start thinking about the opportunities, and we had to start thinking about why Brexit had happened. Because I think if... If change isn't allowed to be a process, it becomes an event, and it's not going to stop with Brexit. People are really fed up with things that don't work in this country. Politics, Whitehall, markets, the mutuality that, that binds us, they, they want us to do better, and that's why people get frustrated at politics. So the book looks at who we are as a country. Uh, it looks at our character, but then it, it looks at uh, how we are doing on all these international indices, and we had a in true play your cards right style, we had a panel of 100 movers and shakers around the world talk about what they think about the country. But one of the things that we discovered was, was that we're obsessed with nostalgia. Um, go in any pub, look at the Goodwood Revival, you know, we, vintage is big business. Um, in fact, we even discovered in, in our research that despite all the sort of castles and ruins that you have across the land, you can buy for your own garden the Gothic Abbey Garden Ruin Kit for a mere £3,000. So you can have your own ruin 
in your garden. It's sort of the, the Jacob Rees-Mogg of garden ornaments. It's, <laughs> it's comparatively new, but channeling sort of antiquity. <laughs> um, but hang on, is it a genuine <laughs> bit of a ruin or is it a fake ruin? It's a fake ruin. I think it's made out of plastic. But <laughs> your garden is, is missing it. So we, nostalgia is big business, but we then ask, why are we? What, what does this tell us about ourselves? And quite often people think it is because we're backward-looking or uh, we're just old-fashioned. But actually, we're not nostalgic about terry-toweling nappies or scurvy or outside <laughs> blues. We're nostalgic about a time when things were clearer. And the world at the moment is so complex and fast-moving. And I think a lot of people are frightened about that. They're frightened about the future. But is nostalgia a uniquely British trait? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't claim we have a monopoly on it. But yeah, it, it is. I mean, there's some really interesting themes that uh, that run through um, are we're quite frugal as well you know, um, blue peter was makes stuff out of rubbish we have the wombles we have the the good life we have you know all of this recycling uh culture we yeah. uh, we have uh, we even delve into um how to make your own dalek and it's basically all sorts of car parts that were put together i mean and basically any doctor who monster tells you a lot about uh, about britain um no, there's some really there's some really unique things about us, and uh, and we look at we look at the character, and then we look at actually what the data tells us and what this panel tells us, and uh, and what they conclude is that we have huge potential, but we never quite unleash it, um, and the argument in the book is that we have to modernise, like Billio. So why why don't we ever unleash it? I mean, obviously, I, as a football fan, I think about this summer. You know, I just think, oh God. Maybe you're right, this is like fundamental in our national character that we get so close and we... I mean, obviously, if you're alive in 66, that's not true. But obviously, then you'd be nostalgic about it, so that bit's true. So, I, I think that... I think being an England football fan and being in politics are very alike. It is the hope that kills you. <laughs> it is the... I am confronted on a daily basis with the political version of the England penalty shootout. It's It's... We know, we, we know where we want to get to. We, yeah. we have a sense of what levelling up is and, and global Britain and all that. But we know the things that are going to hold us back. And it's being limited by what's in Treasury coffers. It's our, in our, in our inability to legislate at the speed that business and science uh, needs us to. And that's why young people are so frustrated at us. They you know, can order something on Amazon and it arrives in three hours. But I have to tell them in my surgery that the thing they care about is going to take us at least four years on a good day with the wind behind us. So all of these things, and we look at this in, in detail and why, um, why markets don't work and why it's important that we get these things in, in better shape. Because if democracy and capitalism don't work, they're like Tinkerbell's light. You know, people stop believing in them, they cease to work. So we have to, have to do better. And the lesson for me, the last bumpy few years in politics is that we have to modernise. We have to get things to work better and make those systems fit for the modern world. And do people still believe in Tinkerbells? <laughs> they, they, uh, I, I don't know about that, but um, Tinkerbell's, Tinkerbell's light, if you don't, if you don't believe in it, um, Tinkerbell dies. And uh, if we don't believe in democracy <laughs> and capitalism, God. they will die. And, uh, and as someone that has worked in the former Eastern Bloc, 
That's a very bad thing. <laughs> okay, let's, we've got some time just to take a couple of questions from the audience. Now, this is going to be very frustrating because I have to repeat back so that people who listen to the podcast get to hear the question. I will repeat it back. So if you can ask for one sentence questions, one sentence answer, that's okay, Penny. Yes, down at the front. And let us know your name. And I'll repeat the question. Oh, he's standing up. <laughs> Feels like I should. Okay, yeah, well, that's sort of military my feel. My name's Neil, and Matt, you're more than welcome to tell me to fuck off again. Oh, God, you asked a question at the Andy Burnham night. Welcome uh, back. <laughs> Good on so, you, by the way. So I did, I did a little research on your voting patterns, and I, I felt that you were a bit anti-benefits. And I'd just kind of like to understand how you feel about that and what, and what support we should give to people. Okay, this is going to feel very patronising for Neil, but because it's going to sound like I'm translating what he said. He said he'd looked at your voting record, seemed to be anti-benefits. Um, what more support can we give to people? So I think if you're someone in my position, you have to take responsibility for your constituents in particular. Um, but you are also part of a government that has to have a programme. So you can make all kinds of um, arguments about things. But ultimately, if you are having to take a cut to a particular benefit, that doesn't absolve me of the responsibility I have to my constituents. So let me tell you what I'm doing. Um, Matt very kindly mentioned the book, um, Greater. All the proceeds from the book have gone into a foundation which is currently funding um, some food pantries in my constituency. These are not like food banks. You, you become a member for four pound a week and you can get a, a good uh, weekly shop of your choice. We're funding uh, Homestart, uh, we're funding some veterans organisations, uh, and um, across my constituency about, about nine organisations that are looking after particularly vulnerable people. I also have done a lot of social uh, capital work, I've done community building refurbishments, one of my projects is a, uh, a Tudor Manor that was left to decay by the council, I bought it for a quid, set up a charity, it's now a community centre. So what we have to recognise is that if the state can't afford to do things, then we have to find other ways of doing that and looking after people. And that, to me, is what conservatism is about. We have to recognise the limits of the state. This is why the big society ran out of puff, because it defined the limits of the state, but it didn't crowd in the private and philanthropic sector. And for me, if you're a conservative, if you're a Labour politician, take, that's what taking responsibility means. So that's what I'm doing. You're basically a communist. That sounds things. Okay, uh, raise your hand. Uh, I don't want to just pick from the front. Is there anyone sort of near? There is someone right in the back of the middle. Uh, as a as a veteran, thank you very much for what you've done for the veteran community. Uh, two quick questions, if I may. Oh, okay. Well, it depends. What, depends what they are. Trade brief. A lot of the easy wins uh, have been done. What big wins do you think you can be a part of? And second, we would have seen the headlines about Poland. What's the future for the EU? Okay, so firstly, he says, as a veteran, you're very grateful for what you've done. Um, people are very, very respectful at these, which is great. At the anti burnham basically everyone was getting up telling him he was a legend. It was, <laughs> was um, slightly frustrating. But, um, so, uh, uh, as, a, as a veteran, you're saying, well done. Firstly, on trade, he feels the easy wins have been taken care of. What are the big wins? And on the EU, rumours about... Poland, what's the future of the EU? So I think we, you're right, we've done a lot of 
rollover continuity trade agreements, um, and we we now are chasing down some some big deals. The path to a U.S. trade deal is uh, is not a, a straightforward one, but I have a cunning plan on this, <laughs> and I think there's a lot of work that we can do to pave the way for that at state level. So right now, I'm trying to persuade my boss to let me. Uh, get a T-bird and, and zoom over the United States. Um, uh, but I think there's, there's a lot of things that we could actually do at state level that would pave the way to uh, a, um, uh, a trade deal. And are you, are you talking about um, European defence with, with regard to your second question? Yes, he's nodding. Yeah. He's nodding in that sort of like quite chilling way that only a veteran so could. Let, let, me tell you, <laughs> let me tell you one more funny story because when I, when I was... Uh, MinAF, I chaired the uh, EU battle group. So this is the combined and forces. And MinAF means the, Minister of Armed Forces. forces. And we, we were doing this exercise. They had all, all the leaders of the um, armed forces of the EU came to London and we did an exercise uh, to ensure that if um, Russia invaded or something, we would, we would know what to do. And we went around the table um, just saying what we would need to do in our capitals to deploy our armed forces. And someone needed a UN resolution Someone else needed an EU resolution and a vote in two of their parliaments. Anyway, we got round the table and it was soon clear to me as the chairman that no one was actually going to get out the door. So I inquired, when was the last time the EU battle group deployed? Set up in like 2007. It's never deployed. So I said, should we just stop this and go for lunch? And, and so we did. But that's, that's what I think about <laughs> European defence. You've got to, and why NATO always should be the foundation for our our defence, because you, you need a coalition of the willing, um, not a bauble for the EU state. And, and, and just on your uh, plan to sort of deal with the America, and when you're talking about at state level, you mean state by state in America? Yes. Rather than the British state? Yes. Um, is Anne-Marie Trevelyan open to letting you <laughs> go on a bike I'm, in Ireland? I've pitched the idea, so, but I, I do think that we need to really invest in that relationship. And it's not just about what goes on in Washington. Um, you know, it, the major cities, states, that's, that's where I think the action is. And I think also it will help in the UK as well. We've got some incredible uh, parts of our country that are, you know, cutting edge technology is, uh, is being developed. And I think we need to act as ambassadors for those places too. Let's have one last question. It's been two men so far. Yes, the lady over there. Me. I used to work in your private office in Dippet. I used to work in your office. What is going on here? <laughs> Hello. Fine. So, so I think with your new trade hat on, I'd be really interested to, to get your take on you know, building back better and, and trade for development, where you think the UK's unique offer is in, in supporting developing countries through our, through our trade links um, on, on you know, building back better, what, what that means, what's the UK's unique offer on that? What's the UK's unique offer on, on using trade to, to build back better, sort of broaden? Into yeah, Can I just ask, uh, and what's your name? Alex. Alex, thank you so much for asking the question, Alex. And, and in all honesty, what was Penny like as a boss? <laughs> God, I don't want to get cheesy, but um, I would say really inspiring, and actually you've, you've made me really committed as a, as a civil servant. I just remember how passionate you were on, on agendas, and even when it would be difficult to push things through and frustrating, you always stuck by your guns, and um, it's, it was inspiring to work for you. Yeah, okay, but like, what were the negatives? <laughs> <laughs> Shall I leave a moment? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did you ever lose a temper? Did you have a routine? Did you make you cry? 
No, never, ever. No, she was very, very lovely. In fact, you, you used to do one thing that was, was always worrying. You would, um, I don't know if you remember this, we were, at, we were at a number 10 reception once at a garden party, and someone said to me, oh, I love your shoes. And I said, thank you, they're killing me, though. And um, Penny actually says, oh, if they're, if they're hurting you, take them off. And then you proceeded to take off your own shoes. And I thought, well, if the Secretary of State has, has said, just take off your shoes, so I, I, I probably should. So I was sitting you know, in this number 10 reception with my shoes off, just thinking, oh my god, my boss would kill me. Would absolutely kill me if she knew I was barefoot. But that was my, my funny story. This is like something from a Robin Williams film. I have no idea. Like, it's like just inspiring civil servants by like empathising with their feet. In the, the, the only, I, I, um, thank you very much. Um, the, the, um, I, I got on. I got on very well with uh, um, the Diffid, the Diffid team. Uh, the only, they usually followed my advice. The only bit of advice I gave them, and I gave it to them in these terms. I said, if you want to stop this department being abolished, you have to get a cat. It's the only way you're going to do it. You but know. why would a cat have stopped the department? Because, you know, the cat would have to go. Have to go. Oh, I see. Because the public are like happy to go into national development, but not a cat. Yeah, yeah. 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 But they didn't, they didn't follow my advice. Um, but, uh, no, so I, there are some big opportunities here. And uh, I'm hoping to use some of my knowledge from DFID in the World Bank to, to do this. We're really good at lots of services in this country. Um, banking, the law... Uh, uh, really good, innovative finance um, and government-to-government uh, -government work that builds knowledge and capacity in, in other nations and also opens up new markets for UK companies. And what, we, what I think we should do is, as we're pushing businesses that work in those services, we should think about how we can help developing nations create almost like enterprise zones where you can get investors going in and they know that they can get access to banking, they can, uh, that it's, there's a framework, a legal framework they can operate in. And, and sometimes it's those things, which don't sound very interesting, sorry, um, that are the real game changers and that, that really help developing nations. So I think there's a, there's a lot we can do and I'm thinking about how we can do that. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this, uh, you're such a wonderful audience always. I mean, it's basically the opposite of question time. Instead of <laughs> being harangued, the audience comes here to compliment you on <laughs> what a wonderful boss you've been. Neil, I guess, was um, a, a little bit more direct. More than the, sort of, that was more of a question. Although, it, in question time, they don't stand up as a sort of mark of deference for the, for the panel. I am here every single... Neil is here every single fortnight, so that's me warned. <laughs> <laughs> But I can't vote against benefits, so that's fine, Neil. My voting record is unblemished because I should never have one. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you for coming. We have moved house from the other palace to here, so tell all your friends, uh, tell them to tell their friends and spread the word. And uh, first of all, a round of applause for everyone who's worked here at the Duchess tonight, all the lights and sound. Thank you, the audience, and all the people who asked fantastic questions. But please... A huge thank you for the fantastic Penny Mordant. Well, there you go, Penny Mordant. What an absolute treat having the Trade Minister on the show. And sometimes, I mean, it, it, obviously, the politics is 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 fascinating, but it's also about the person. And you can only really get a proper sense of someone when, when you're in the room with them. And I think that's what's so special about these nights is. You get to, I get to obviously 
sit opposite them, but the audience in the room gets to see a, a leading politician be themselves for an hour. And that's very different to just getting five minutes on the radio or on, on TV. And you realise, actually, I've always, um, I, I think, seen Penny as a very talented, very charismatic, very thoughtful, and I think all those things are true. But I never really sort of appreciated, I guess, her philosophy on life. And some people, obviously I said this during the interview, just don't perceive that there are any barriers. Now, that's easier if you come from certain backgrounds, obviously. But nevertheless, that's something we can all learn from. And I just think... Just thinking, well, I'll, I'll go and do... I guess I identified with that a bit. Obviously, I've worked in politics for a bit and I've always done comedy. So I guess in a way I kind of share that. But I always admire that in people. They're just like, well, I just went and did it. And, and the rest of us sometimes can think, oh, yeah, of course. You can just go and do things. Now, it's not as easy as that. You don't necessarily always get the job. But having a crack at stuff and just putting yourself out there... Uh, is a positive thing, I think. And sometimes it's reassuring people in government have also shared that and have done some different jobs and had that approach to life. And also a kind of sense of just getting on with stuff and also trying to bring people together. And you really get that sense from Penny that her focus is on uniting people and getting stuff done, um, often in difficult circumstances. So that was an absolute pleasure. Thank you to everyone who came. The Duchess Theatre, I mean, I always loved the other palaces. I'm sure those of you, you came to the show regularly there knew, but we've now moved to the Duchess Theatre, and it really is. I mean, you come out, and then it's like, you're in the West End, it's like the Lion King and Mamma Mia and stuff like that. It gives it such an atmosphere. The venue is beautiful. Um, so come down on Monday the 25th to see Caroline Flint, which will be an absolute cracker of a night. Tickets for that show and for all future shows available in the blurb, mattford.com slash live. And you can buy Penny's book there as well, Greater, which is a cracking read. Also, tell all your friends about the show. Tell all your friends that we're now at the Duchess. And leave a review if you can. And if you've got a second spare, a written review just helps the um, podcast get up the charts. So that's enough of the hard sell. Have a great week and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.